Welcome to another episode of the Beef Bits Podcast. I'm Dr. Jeff Limcooler, Extension Beef Cattle Specialist at the University of Kentucky. Through the Beef Bits Podcast, we will share current news, management tips, new research, and other issues related to beef cattle production. I'll be joined by various guests to bring different views and insights on beef cattle topics. I hope you will follow or subscribe to the Beef Bits Podcast and find the information useful. Welcome to another episode of the Beef Bits Podcast. I'm Jeff Limcooler, and today I'm joined by my colleague, Dr. Michelle Arnold. Dr. Arnold is an extension ruminant veterinarian at the University of Kentucky. Welcome this morning, Dr. Arnold. Thanks. Thanks, Dr. Limcooler, for having me. So you've been out and about uh, traveling. I know you were at um, the NCBA meetings here and uh, spent some time down there. Did you see anything interesting or learn anything new down in that area? I think uh, probably the, the most interesting uh, talk that I went to was Dr. Mike Apley, who's uh, the veterinarian who um, knows the most about prescription prescription products, um, veterinary products. And he said summer, he said by mid 2023, all um, antibiotics will be removed from uh, over the counter use. So there won't be anything like LA 200, LA 300 penicillin available to buy any longer at at places that are, for for example, at the co-op or tractor supply or Southern States. Well, we probably kind of seen that coming, right? Uh, right. As, so it, it may be good that folks just think about that. To, and, and the reason that that's important is if you don't know your veterinarian by now, you darn well ought to give them a call and get to know them, right? Right. And the other thing he said, which was a little bit disturbing, was the, the veterinary feed directive uh, where we have to write a prescription for for feed additives for medicated feed, um, if there are certain states that have decided, if if a veterinarian has a large has a client with a large number of cattle, they're going to have to report. They will have to report those numbers to the state, and that was uh, Maryland was the first one to do that, and the the veterinarians. AABP, everybody came out against it and they passed it anyway. And um, so that that's a little bit disturbing and that that's kind of a, that's a veterinary client um, confidentiality. You know, how many calves they've got or how many they should not be should not be revealed through the veterinarian. I mean, that the feed directive has you, you have your vet, you have the, the client, but also the feed mill has that on file. And they're already they are already checking the feed mill. So they really don't need to lean on the vet for that information. So I'm not sure where that's going, but um, it's kind of a little bit unnerving. Yeah, that's kind of almost like uh, if we relate it back to, to, you know, our medicine policies, it's kind of violation of HIPAA rules for right. veterinarians. Exactly. Um, and it didn't seem to make any difference who, that, 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 was, that that was brought out, but hopefully that won't happen here, but. Uh, it is happening in other places in the in the country. So it's a state by state decision. State by state, right? Hmm. Well, that's that's something else that we should be keeping on our radar and be informed of, then for certain. 
So as, as we move forward here, we're in late August, and um, yeah, I thought it would be a good time for us to chat a little bit about um, something that's going to be happening in a lot of these spring calving herds, and that's when the choir starts. In other words, when we get ready to wean these calves, and um, we're going to have some opportunities here maybe to to minimize the stress on the calves and, and the producers themselves, but also try to set these calves up from a health standpoint to be successful when they move into the market channel. And uh, I've kind of asked you today to be thinking about some of those top things that producers might be able to do to, if not maybe uh, ensure a, a health healthy calf at weaning, certainly minimize the, uh, the, the risk of calves getting sick and the duration that those calves might be sick. So um, as you think about from our cow-calf producer standpoint, what's probably the top things, and, and maybe we'll just stop start here with the top number one thing that you think producers should be considering at weaning time to keep these calves healthy? Well, I think this is where COVID has made my job a little bit easier because uh, now we're, we're used to talking about vaccinations and the need for a booster and how long it takes before protection kicks in. You know, we know anybody that's had that two shot series, they tell you, you can still, you're, you're still not totally protected for another 10 days after the, after your second dose. And that's something we need to bear in mind with cattle are the same way. They're the most immune systems function the same, the same way. So, um, I think the first thing to do as a cow-calf producer is figure out how you're going to market your calves because if you have, if you're going to go with a certain program, for example, CPH, um, they will have a playbook for you. They'll have that set set up already as to what vaccinations are needed and when, and deworming schedule, etc. So check there first um, if or decide at least how you're going to, how you want to market those because you don't want to have to, to redo something just because you're off, <clears throat> off on your timing. And so after, product, right? I mean, yeah. some of those programs have specific products. Specific products and specific timing. So good, good idea anyway, to figure out how you want to market those calves and when. So the number one, the number one thing after you do that, uh, assuming all your nutritional aspects are taken care of, I'm not going to go into those, but uh, from a health standpoint, the number one thing we want to do to get these calves ready is vaccinate them against respiratory disease. And we want to start it prior to weaning. About three weeks prior to them being weaned, you want to get them in and start them on that, um, start them on that first dose of vaccine. Uh, the research you, you would not you would not believe the amount of research done on vaccines and timing, and every single one comes up with the same conclusion that if you'll start vaccinating pre-weaning, they really benefit from it. They do so much better than trying to do it at weaning, after weaning. Um, it, it, they just the vaccine response is tremendous and it, it makes a lot of sense we don't they're not under stress you know three weeks before weeding they're still with the dam they're in familiar territory um 
you know, the, all the things, all those external things that they had to deal with are not a problem pre-weaning. So that's when we want to start. Um, so the calves are just perfect at that point to mount an immune response. That's a good point. And you mentioned nutrition too, and we have not disrupted or changed the nutritional profile or plan at that time. They're still having access to the dam's milk for a good source of protein. They're still out there on common pastures and, and where they know how to graze and they know where to go to get water at that point. Whereas if we wait to do it once we remove them from their dams, it's a new environment maybe new feed because they haven't been exposed to, to eating, say, silage or haylage. It takes some time for them to acclimate to some of those diet changes. And there was a study I seen um, at the National Animal Science meetings I went to this July. And there's a tremendous immune response need for amino acids and other nutrients. And so if we're trying to promote an immune response through vaccination, and we've changed their dietary um, plane of nutrition, uh, we may not get the best bang for our buck out of our vaccinations. Exactly. And, and we're also asking a lot from their immune systems. Um, you know, we take um, the COVID-19 vaccine had one antigen in it, and that was COVID. So that was that virus. So when we vaccinate against respiratory disease, most of the time we've got four viruses in there. If we add um, if we add the bacteria, we're doing monheimia and pasteurella. So that's another set of antigens. And then if we get blackleg at the same time, that's another set um, of, of antigens. That's a lot. That is a lot to ask from an immune system that's already that would be stressed from other things. So we want to give them the best, the best possible chance. At, um, at mounting an immune response to these. So we would, we would start then, um, most of our vaccinations, um, probably good to, to talk to your veterinarian and, and or make sure you read the full labels. But some of these products likely have a booster that's required. And so was that part of the rationale maybe to, to get that three weeks in advance? Yes, that's definitely part of that rationale. Get that first dose in, and then after weaning, after the stress of weaning is over, you can come back with a with a second dose with your booster, and and that it, it just works so smoothly to do it that way. And so they have that really nice immune response to a second dose, um, and and one dose for the most part is not is not going to do the trick. There are some. Um, there are some modified live vaccines that that on the label say one dose is protective, but a second dose is recommended. So I think, again, you have to look at your program. It's your program specifically. Um, if you had decided you were going to feed out your calves and sell them all for freezer beef, you know, and that and you weren't adding anything in, adding any new animals in that in that regard, you wouldn't need a booster. You know, those. So every, I'll just tell you, every situation is different. That's where your vet's really needed because it's a complicated situation. We've got so many vaccines on the market. There are tons of vaccines and there's modified live and there's killed and there's intranasal. 
and there's, um, you know, there's all different combinations. And then add to that the fact that if you give modified live to a calf and the dam's not been vaccinated, she can abort. So we've got that, that difficult situation there that is hard to explain. And it's, it's why we don't see really good uh, written out instructions on how to vaccinate is because of those, those problems. You know, we have so many different products. It would take numerous pages to write all that, all the different options out, you know, so, so that's where you, you really need, you really need a vet to help you, to help you figure it out. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and you made a really good point that is, is kind of situational. And we, we often forget that in regards to um, immune systems and disease challenges, it's, we think about vaccination to promote immune response and build those antibodies. And we forget about the, the load of exposure to certain pathogens. And even in animals that have been vaccinated, if their immune system is compromised and they don't have adequate titers, they can still get sick because their exposure level is, you know, overwhelming uh, the immune system's capacity to deal with that. So yeah, we see the same same thing with COVID. That vaccinated people can get it. They they get it, but often they don't end up in the hospital, and they can get over it more quickly. And that's really the goal here with vaccination is um, 100% protection is hard to achieve. So if you can get them to where if you can get calves to where one dose of antibiotics will will clear them up completely. That's really the best best case scenario. So let's think about that because you mentioned, you know, we may be vaccinating for quite a few things. Uh, you know, the the respiratory virals, the respiratory bacterials, the clostridials for black leg, which there's often seven or nine different strains in that vaccine alone, um, somnus, etc. What is what is the approach there then? Is it best to um, start with one and then, you know, two or three weeks later, give another one, two or three weeks later, give another one? What What's the approach on that? Oh, that would be in an, in an ideal world. That would be perfect if we could give one dose at a time. But um, unfortunately, it, it's just not practical when in with cattle. You know, we we typically we can get them. I'll run through the shoot twice. We've really done something. I mean, it's 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 even hard to get the men to do the booster. So <clears throat> we err on the side of give them give them what they have to have, and hopefully their immune system will respond. You know, like like say in a perfect world, you would come in and give one dose, and then come back and maybe a, a week later or five days later and give a different type of vaccine, for example, the black leg and maybe somnus combined with it and kind of stagger these out. But it, just practically speaking, it just can't, it just doesn't occur. Um, and it, it, with volumes of cattle, what they are and the numbers that have to go through, you'd, you'd spend all day, every day getting cattle up and vaccinating. So, so we do the best we can. And you brought up a really good point about, you know, again, it's very situational and working with your veterinarian because it, 
as an example, if we happen to be in a program where we vaccinated for black leg and the clostridials at two to three months of age and at castration time, that maybe buys us a little bit of time at wean to bring that in later on. Exactly. To bring that in later on or even finish it up. You could even finish up your black leg vaccine um, before you even got to the time of weaning. And I think that would be ideal to have that over with because it black leg vaccine is one that that does tend to cause some fever and some discomfort. So um, I, I do try to try to e either give it uh, alone or um you know, just try to recommend they at least get one dose in before before we go into all this weaning process because it is a hard vaccine, but it's necessary. It's if they're going to be on grass, it's necessary to have black leg because they yeah. can definitely pick it up and and it's deadly. You know, it's a deadly disease. Yeah, and and a an eighty cent to dollar vaccination can can save that five to eight hundred dollar calf pretty easy. So moving beyond vaccines, um, as we think about other management tips that they could consider to try and keep these calves healthy around that weaning time, what would be another one to consider? I think uh, something we also need to think about is do, do a little pre-planning. You know, what um, what are we going to have as far as facilities, you know, for, for these calves? Where are they going to go? Have they got plenty of shade? Uh, is there good ventilation? This is a good day to go out there and stand where those calves are going to be and see how hot it is and how much how much air is moving. I mean, it's it's very important in terms of their uh, <clears throat> in terms of their lung health. You know, lungs are in cattle. That's their weak organ. So if they're going to have disease most of the time, it's respiratory. And checking out uh, water, your water, is it clean Are the you know, are the. Um, it, has it been cleaned out? Make sure if it hasn't that you dump it out, dump out that watering trough and scrub it. Um, I think uh, Dr. Lemkuler had has the, the the test where you put your hand in, right? You put yeah. your hand in the water, yeah. and if you can smell your hand all day long, that's probably not what you, what you're after. So, um, you know, clean water is essential, and and we know that that these calves if they're not familiar with a watering trough or going to poop in it, um, they're going to try to stand in it, it whatever. So this has got to be kept clean or they won't drink enough. Um, yeah. There's this misconception that all these ball drinkers that we have and everything keeps the water clean down inside them. But your calves, calves and cows mouths are not clean and there's going to be forage and feed on their mouths as they push that ball down in there and it gets in the water and begins to deteriorate and rot. So it sometimes it's not even fecal contamination. It's just feed that's been spoiled in water. And often, you know, our, our water's different in a, in a watering trough if they've been used to ponds or creeks yeah. and suddenly they're on water that's chlorinated. Um, it can be a different, you know, different situation. So Got it. In, in this kind of weather, especially, be aware that they have to be drinking water. And if they're not, we need to change something pretty quickly because dehydration, <clears throat> with dehydration, their ability to fight disease is is very, very poor. So it's one of the just fundamentals of health is being hydrated. 
So we're yeah we're we're hitting ninety degree temperatures with high humidity, and so heat stress is going to be one of those things that we need to be thinking about. And there, you've you've pulled away the dam's milk as a source of water, and you know these calves could easily be drinking six to ten gallons of water a day if um, under certain heat stress conditions. So that's a good thing to be monitoring: is how much water are they actually consuming? And you want to avoid those weather extremes. If you see it's going to be 100 degrees, I would avoid vaccination in weather like that. Even even though they, they can cool themselves somewhat overnight, um, our temperatures at night are not getting that cool either. And they just don't have a way. They don't have a method to get rid of that extra heat. Um, so, you know, those are the times do you really want to vaccinate and make them have a, a fever on top of that? Try to try to build some flexibility in there um, because ultimately our ultimate goal is to make them healthier. And, um, you know, that that may not happen if you do, if you if you vaccinate when when we're right in the middle of it, of a heat wave, a really bad one. I think that that's a really good thing. We all we probably don't as managers spend enough time thinking about preparing for a, an event and you know, making sure you've got the syringes and the needles and even in some situations, product may be limited and you may have to switch product and you need to know what's the best next alternative. So having that time to in advance to prepare and get those products in, uh, it won't catch you by surprise. Right. If you're in a working facility, have that where it's accessible and if it's not, you know, if you use a dart gun, make sure you've got darts on hand and that um, that your antibiotic is fresh and current, you know, that's not out of date, hasn't been sitting out in the sun or been on the floorboard, any of these things that, that will that will ruin a, an antibiotic. So. Yeah, and that's the other good thing that you mentioned about um, the heat in those products. As we move into to processing those calves, most of those vaccines have to be handled with some care, right? And right, and kept cool, especially especially the modified live vaccines. They need to be mixed and used within within an hour, um, and and to get the most out of them. And if you let it go longer than that, they lose they lose their potency um, quickly over time, especially when they're warm. So so they need to be kept cool and out of direct sunlight. Right. And again, if you mix it up, mix it up one box at a time, 10 doses at a time, use those, then mix the next. Kind of yeah. pre-mix a lot um, because it, it does take time. It, you think you're going to work a calf in a minute, but most of the time it's not quite that short. Right. <laughs> most of the time, you know, you spend five minutes on a calf and you mix up a 10-dose file, that's nearly an hour. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well, that weather comment is another one and, and we can take it to the other extreme where we have maybe getting into the fall and, and we come into some drastic weather changes where we have um, maybe 20 to 30 degree differences between daytime highs and nighttime lows and and those events can sometimes be stressful they're very stressful that that swing of temperature Cattle can deal with with temperature either staying hot or staying cold, 
But that variation, especially when they get up at a 30 degree swing, um, we, we see a lot of respiratory disease. And it seems to be more concentrated in the fall. And in the spring, I don't, we don't seem to have those great big swings like that as we do in the fall. Um, and they are just, they're hard on their lungs. You know, their, their hair coat, in a lot of cases, they're still got their summer hair coat and it's cold. Um, or vice versa, you know, they've, they've got their winter hair coat and it's hot. And yeah. it's just hard. It's just very difficult. They're breathing fast. You know, they're panting. Yeah. Um, so. I'll never forget um, the one one farm call I went out on and they were lightweight calves that had been weaned and they were um, kind of in a low area. You know, a lot of our farms, uh, there's kind of a low area next to the barn and that and went out early morning to look at the calves and there was that a high humidity in the air and, and a fog and there those calves just had wet hair coats simply from all the precipitation in the air, the moisture in the air. And uh, they were dealing with high incidence of respiratory disease. Yeah. And those, those cases, I mean, they, they occur. I think that's one of those things you just have to be aware of. And, and that's where you need to be a good a good manager and really watch, watch them. If they start to struggle or they're backing off their feed, um, that's the time you probably need to institute some type of therapy, even if it's get them all in with med and give a dose of an antibiotic as metaphylactic control, because it, it can be a, it can be a bad situation. If you see that, see that coming down the road. And, and try to look at that forecast. I always tell folks, you know, you, if you can keep them from getting rained on within the first three days, it seems like that can help um, as well. Right. Some type of shelter, just some, some type of shelter, but, but without overcrowding. You don't want them to have to be put so close together to get under the shelter that they don't have any, any air movement either. So. Yeah, good point. It's just like, just like we always say about, uh, you know, our kids in the first day of kindergarten, within seven days, they're all going to probably get sick because we've introduced a lot of different people with different pathogens and different resistance. And we put them in a small classroom and exposure is high. Exposure is very high. Exactly. So we can see that in crowded barns left and right all the time. So the other thing is speaking of barns that we want to think about too is, is having some kind of fly control program ready. Um, if you're gonna if you if you're going to put these wean calves into a barn or into like a feedlot situation where they're um, in a confined space, the flies are gonna be a, a, a more of a problem. So you want to have some type of control ready. Um, that's going to control both horn flies and face flies. And face flies are going to are going to make them uh, more prone to pink eye. So um, you don't want to rely. Don't rely on your dewormer for that. Your dewormers are not made for fly control. They're made for deworming. And it's nice that they they have a little bit of fly control that comes along with it, but it's it's not long lasting, uh, and certainly not um, not as effective as the products that are made for flies. And the other thing you might think about when it comes to fly control is think about treating the, the area where they are. If they're in a feedlot or barn area, 
Uh, you can use some residual sprays where flies rest, you know, where they you see them resting on a post or um, places like that. You can spray and, and control a lot of flies right in that area too. Yeah, and that's a really good point. And, and trying also to keep spoiled feed away because that can be a source where they want to lay eggs and you've got more flies. And so that's that, that's a really good point that we don't really consider a lot of times. And, with, and of course, internal parasites, you need to deworm these calves. When you do that, whether you do it pre-weaning or, or when you do your booster uh, after weaning, Either one works, but the, the, the primary goal is to just remove that parasite burden, those internal parasites, because they're competing. They're competing for feed, um, and they get, and they also, they compete for their immune system, too. Dewormers cr create some immune, um, immune response, or worms do, so they take away from that immune system. They take energy away from the immune system. And it's pointed toward trying to keep those parasites under control. So just cleaning out the parasites from these recently weaned animals, or they're getting ready to be weaned either way, um, really helps them utilize all the energy they're, they're taking in for what they've got to do, you know, for, for, for not only for immunity, but for their growth and maintenance. Yeah, that's a, we, we don't think about that either from the standpoint that they're out on grass and the dam themselves, if they've not been dewormed, can certainly be a major contributor to contaminating pastures where these calves are at and, and consuming that forage. So they can be burdened with internal parasites. And we really strongly recommend now when you're, when you're deworming to use two products to use um, what we call the white dewormers, where it's a drench. Um, so you give it by mouth um, and they're, they're, uh, they're kind of an, uh, an aggravation to use because you do have to give it by mouth. But those white dewormers work really well. They work so well that just clean out the parasites that are all through, um, all through the intestinal tract. And then also at the same time to use another type of dewormer, either Poron or injectable um, from, from a different class. So those two wormers really work well together because what one dewormer doesn't kill, the other one probably will. So they, they it's not that they're synergistic, it's just that they're just covering each other. You know, what one doesn't, what one doesn't kill, the other one probably will. So you get a nice uh, coverage, complete coverage for, um, for that calf. And the, the poor honor, the injectable is also going to give them a little bit of time with that because they, they typically last around three weeks, whereas the white dewormers only last during the, the time it's in the digestive tract, which is around a day. And so if you're weaning on pasture or are going to take these calves after weaning and put them out on pasture, you got a little residual protection from some of those other products then. Mm -hmm. Right. It's yeah. So we, we talked about vaccines. We talked about um, fly control and deworming. So what, and we talked about planning. What are, what's another um, thing that maybe comes to mind as far as trying to minimize uh, calves getting sick around weaning time that would be simple for folks to maybe adapt and, and put down as a management thing they can do on their farm? 
I think one thing um, we need to think about too is coccidiosis. Mm. Coccidia is a, is a protozoan parasite, so it's not covered by our dewormers. You know, most people think, well, I've already dewormed, it should cover all the parasites. Well, protozoans are a little different, little different animals, so um, they take a different type of medication. So coccidia are, 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 are normally found. I mean, they're, they're very prevalent in cattle, but at low levels. However, at a, in a stressful time, um, like weaning, they can really take off and, and multiply rapidly. So you, that, that, uh, that coccidiosis prevention, you could use it in the feed, whatever feed you're using, um, the, the ionophores, uh, like rumensin or, or lasalicid. The um, decops is, a, is not an ionophore, but it's very effective for prevention. And then even uh, amprolium has a, has a prevention dose. So those can be, those can be utilized from, from the beginning. Or if you want to wait or you see that there's diarrhea development, developing, coccidia, usually they have diarrhea sometimes blood with it and usually a lot of straining they will really strain and strain so you don't want them to get to that point but if you do note that that you start to see that that's where you want to come in quickly and treat and treat for coccidia um, the most common product used is one called corid which is the active ingredient is amprolium and it's it can be administered either in the water or as a, um, a top dress, as a top dress on the feed. And they make it with alfalfa, so it's very, it's very palatable. They usually eat it and eat it well. Or you can have, you can have um, amprolium mixed in your feed um, if, you have a, if you're buying certain types of feed. And some are made, you know, some are, are made with it in there, some of the stress feeds. Sure, yep. Yeah, Particularly, you know, you see some of that more common maybe on the, the small ruminant side, but it um, doesn't mean that you can't get it mixed in on beef cattle as well. Right. Yeah, I've seen it mixed in with the with the stress feeds before. And um, so, and that, that works well. I guess you, have you discussed stress feeds at all? We, we really haven't, no. Um, you know, I think the some of the key things are to make sure that we, especially the first day or so is that we've got some really high quality grass, leafy hay accessible to them. That's going to, if you're in a dry lot situation, that's going to mimic what they've been accustomed to out on pasture and, and make sure we've got water. Um, you know, if you can get them through that first 24 hours uh, to 48 hours with high quality grass hay and that's free of, I mean, I hate to say this because we're in fescue country, but really Kentucky 31 infected tall fescue is not our friend here in this situation. Um, but a, a good orchard grass type hay or a novel uh, fest, novel endophyte fescue hay that's leafy and not got a lot of seed heads in it. Those calves will typically do okay. The, the challenge that I have with stress feeds at times is those calves, um, particularly if they're medicated, it's hard to get them to eat there a lot of dose to get the medication in that they need for prevention. And 
you've got a, a older calf that maybe isn't as stressed uh, from that dam separation as a younger calf and they're getting more of their fair share of that feed than the younger calf so um, i think it's it's stress feeds that need to be you know relatively high in protein um, it's and the reason for that is we're not going to see high levels of intake you know we might be targeting mm -hmm just two pounds a day intake. And so depending on the forage quality, it may need to be an 18 to 20% protein stress feed um, because their intake is so low. And, and then we've got to think about palatability and we've got to think about, um, do we want a little bit of protection in there from acidosis? So maybe not all corn and use some of the co-products like soy hulls and corn gluten feed and do we want a little roughage built in there from some cottonseed hulls? And for whatever reason, the research is pretty consistent that cottonseed hulls seems to be palatable and the calves will tend to want to eat it. And even though nutritionally it's not the best feed, but it certainly can help in these stress type feeds. But if, if you're interested in that, I think folks need to visit. I always feel like that first seven to 14 days is the window to be thinking about a stress feed because the research shows us that by about day seven to 10, if they're healthy, they're back to normal intakes. Right. And another, another um, mistake I see made is, is thinking that the calves, these newly weaned calves should be on alfalfa or even some, some corn silage. Um, it's just too much. Yep. Get, that, that just ex exasperates the dehydration issue because especially with that high quality alfalfa, there's too much protein for the system and it gets down to the lower GI tract and the microbes down there have a party and they get loose in the scours and they're already dehydrated some from walking the pen so much and bawling and trying to get back to mom that this, this can be a bit of a problem. So a, a good, you know, 10 to 12% crude protein grass leafy hay is, is sufficient. Um, and we've seen problems with silage yeah, uh, when it's left in the, it left in the bunk, especially um, that they will not eat that. Once it starts to get hot and moldy, there's, there's the intake would be go to almost zero, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the old saying is that, um, Sick cattle don't eat and cattle that don't eat get sick. Mm -hmm. And in that stress time, you want to do everything you can to promote intake. So, so that's, that's another thought is um, lowering stress. Your weaning technique um, is very important to think about. If you can use institute one of the low stress techniques um, like fence line weaning, it does make a tremendous difference because those calves don't walk as much. They don't ball as much. Uh, it's just so much easier all around if they can see one another and smell one another, um, but can't, you know, but the calf can't get over there to nurse. Yep. Has, has proven time and time again to take away a, a lot of stress. It, it certainly has. And you have technology out there today that has, you know, with the nose flaps and some of that, that um, can help with, you know, if you don't have maybe a fence to fence line wing, uh, I think even the nose flaps can help, but you got to make sure you don't leave those in much longer than five to seven days. Um, 
Otherwise, you know, there's some risk of some abscesses on the nose and that, but um, there are tools in our toolbox to minimize that stress at weaning. Yes, if you haven't, if you haven't tried pencil on weaning, give it a try. It's not uh, the easiest thing because it, it does take a strong fence and usually a little bit of electricity is a good thing too. Um, but um, it, it's especially there's just certain cows that um, they're going to, they're going to ball their heads off unless they can just see their, see their baby. And then they seem to be okay. They'll, they'll, stay right there by the fence for a day or two and then finally walk away. And you think, wow, I finally made it. It's, <laughs> it's over. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, in my experience, when we, we started our early demonstrations on fence line weaning um, in the early 2000s, um, what I tended to notice is that wasn't necessarily the calves so much as it was the cows just seeking some relief from the utter pressure of milk not being removed mm -hmm. so then you've got cows that are standing at the fence you know calling the calves to come and give them relief but the the calves were laying down until the cows start calling and um so i i do think that that is a very good management tip and and it's even even if you have to go spend a little money to buy some woven wire and some steel fence posts and set up a weaning lot in a pasture um it is worth the investment in my opinion and it's, it's not easy. I mean, they, it seems like the first day or so you're always putting calves back, back into the pen for what, for however they got out though. But uh, after, after you finally get uh, fine tune it, it seems to work really well, but it's, it's not, uh, not for the faint of heart. You have to be ready to be frustrated. So <laughs> right here at the first <laughs> We've had we've had calves swim swim through water tanks to get mm -hmm. back to the other side and yeah but but one strand of like you said one strand of electric fence on either side seems to help mitigate a lot of the fence crossing and we've even uh, some of the agents helped us work on some electric temporary electric fencing systems to wean calves with using poly wire and. We've had mixed success, but I think we've got a formula now that can be pretty successful with that. Um, but I, I would say that one for sure is a higher degree of management and the calves have to be used to polywire electric fencing pre-weaning to respect that and understand what it is. Right. Yeah, they have to be. You, you couldn't introduce it right there at weaning um, because they they don't respect it at all. No matter how hot it is, it doesn't seem to matter. So, yeah, and it we we had to move to some taller fence posts um, because the standard temporary fence posts are too low, and calves will try to jump over them. But there are some five foot step in tread posts that you can get, and and we've had some decent success with those. And that's another thing. Any anything you can introduce prior to weaning that the calves will be doing the if it's drinking from a watering trough or, or eating from a bunk, if you'll feed a little bit and they get, they come and eat next to, next to their mom and the feed bunk, it certainly makes all these transitions easier to say they just, you don't want to, you want to minimize these new things when they get weaned. So you wean them someplace they're familiar with, um, an area they're familiar with helps as well where they can get around they know where the water is they know they've been there yeah. um 
So that's that's another thing just to bear in mind. I think one of the last things that we maybe haven't touched on yet is, and you, I think I've heard this question come to you many times, is castration or dehorning and timing, and is it is it better to load all the stress up at one time or stretch that stress out or is if we're not able to get the calves castrated younger age, uh, how do we handle that? How do we? That's a, just an excellent question, and hopefully, hopefully, all of this is done when they're very, very small, because the the small the the less they weigh when they get uh, castrated, the better the better off we are. And just because with growth, they get more more blood supply to um, to the testicles, and it makes it just makes it more difficult the the bigger they get. But nonetheless, there's always situations that come up where you can't castrate um, early. So the question always comes up: Do we do we do it at, right at weaning, or or when we're doing vaccines, or should we postpone it? And the, you know the research we see comes out both ways. I mean, they you can find a result for any either way as being beneficial. So you have to look at your situation. This is where um, you got to use some of your some of your own judgment. Talk with your vet about it. Um, it's best if you can castrate later after your vaccines are, are done, simply because they're going to have that protection. They'll have some protection because castration is very stressful, especially in bigger bigger calves. So the the prevailing uh, thought right now is to wait, is to wait until your vaccinations are, are finished, both both doses, or you could potentially do it when you're doing your booster dose. That that happens quite often. But um, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a very stressful procedure. I think um, we're seeing some, some change in that and that you know, with, with banding, especially on these big, big bull calves starting to um, put the band on and then, and then they're cutting the scrotal, cutting the scrotal sac so they, they don't get that tremendous amount of swelling um, has helped a lot. That's, 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 it, it used to be a month they would walk around painful before they finally lost it in front, before the scrotum finally fell off. So, and another thing with, sorry, with castration this time of year, if you were going to do it, you better do something about flies and you better be careful because they're going to be lying down a lot and, and, or trying to get in wet areas to stay cool. And that's where we start to see a lot of infection. Good point. And the other thing that you made the comment about on vaccination prior to, there's some special considerations if you're going to band, right? Right, with tetanus. Tetanus is a, is a big consideration as the calf ages and gets larger. Um, tetanus is, is much more, much more um, apt to occur with, with a band. I mean, obviously with banding, we're, we're creating an environment there where we've cut off the blood supply. So you've got an area of tissue that doesn't get oxygen because it's not getting blood. And those are that's the area where these clostridial organisms, which tetanus is one of them, like to grow. They grow in that and they give off the tetanus toxin. And that's what um, causes the tetanus um, to occur. 
So again, the tetanus prevention is really supposed to be two shots and supposed to be done two weeks prior to castration mm. in order to be, I mean, it's like COVID vaccine. We're supposed to have all that done and give them a couple of weeks before you even castrate. And that literally is, is rarely done, rarely practiced. Um, so bottom line is if you, if you're going to castrate, try to get that tetanus toxoid in prior to, if you can't do that, we have products called, there's a tetanus anatoxin, which is a different type of product can be given the day of castration. It'll give a little bit of protection because it's, it's, um, it doesn't rely on the body to produce it. It's already ready-made antibodies. So you would give the tetanus anatoxin and the other product, the tetanus toxoid, you would give them at the same time. So the longer, the longer that scrotal sac is attached, the higher the chance of tetanus. So hopefully, you know, hopefully that's going to fall off quickly. And again, that's where that uh, slitting the scrotal sac has helped because it tends to come off sooner. And and with regards to tetanus, the, the risk is higher with banding. And we, we would you typically see veterinarians recommending tetanus for knife castration versus banding? They don't typically. Uh, because with knife castration, you've got an open wound. You've got an open uh, scrotal sac, the testicles are removed, and then it's left open you know, for, for drainage. Um, so we don't see that same type of situation where there's no oxygen going to that area. There's still oxygen going down there. Yep. And, and so we don't see that same type of environment created. Um, it's not it's not a bad idea. I mean, tetanus is definitely possible that way, but but the higher risk is with banding. Well, I I think that's um, a good management point is to to think about getting the calves through, getting their immune system built up before we put a really high level of physical stress on them, like castration. And, and if it's, I mean, I, ideally, I think we would all like to see that done you know, as soon as possible. I remember uh, one of my co former colleagues used to say, if, if they were born breech, I would castrate them before I pulled them. <laughs> I know that's the extreme and, and they wouldn't do that. But uh, the point on that is it's it's okay to go ahead even and, and castrate them at, you know, day of age or, or so to try and minimize that stress on those calves. And the, the argument is always the same from everyone is, oh, if I castrate early, they won't gain as much weight. You know, they won't gain as much and um, as they as these bulls do because you've taken away their, their implant. So you can always put an implant in to replace that. But even I, I don't I don't think the research bears that out, does it, Jeff? Um, it, it all depends on how you look at it, because if you were to take the 30 days post castration performance at weaning time compared to the calves that were, you know, steered early, um, you're right. You'll see much, much better performance on those steers at the weaning time. So if you do that 30, 45 day precondition window, you're going to make up a lot of what you lost, quote unquote, as them being steers versus bulls. Yeah. Implants easy to do when you're castrating. Just, just put a, Put a yeah. raw grow in their ear. 
and yep. that will and they'll keep they'll keep keep up they will keep up absolutely and it's it's a a relatively inexpensive investment it's one of the few that you know year after year project after project um, you're looking at a significant financial return per dollar invested. And if you do a natural program and you can't implant, uh, I've talked to many producers in, in that type of situation and they don't see a lot of difference. If they, if they castrate early, maybe they don't really see a, 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 a large amount of difference if they wait and castrate later in terms of weight gain. So yep. you're not going to gain that much if you, if, if you wait and a matter of fact, and you're going to create more health problems. If you wait until the calves are bigger, you got much more risk of problems with yeah. tetanus. If you do a surgical castration, they can bleed to death. Um, there's just a lot of uh, infections, much more common when they're larger. So got a lot of things to think about there that you don't want to mess with. You just don't want to have to deal with those type of problems. Good, good, good points. Um, and we forget about the increased risk of sickness and, and then the antibiotic costs today are not inexpensive. And so you can, even though you may have a heavier calf, that it takes a lot of pounds to pay off some antibiotics. Yes, it does. And, you know, I've always heard that argument too. Well, if I buy bull calves at the sale, then I know that they haven't been messed up or, you know, there's always that argument. But, um, um, I believe that's that, that if we, if we sell weaned calves, weaned vaccinated calves that are castrated, those are really going to bring the premium. Those, they do. They, they always do yep. because, um, they have had everything they need and, you know, document this stuff. Make sure you write down what you use, what products you used and when, because when you tell, you tell them at this, at a sale that you gave them all the shots, it really doesn't mean anything. There are people that say, well, I gave them all the shots and that meant they gave one round of black leg. So be specific, be specific as best you can on what products you used and when. And that helps too. It's just like anything else that we try to sell. We, we try to, um, you know, give us best of a picture of what we're, we're trying to market or sell. And I remember, I think it was Dr. Burris that said, you know, we go to sell our old farm truck, We'll wash it and wax it the first time in 15 years when we go to sell it uh, just to try and make it look better. But uh, we need to take the mentality on these calves to, to promote what it is that we're trying to market. And, and it should be the healthiest calves that we can produce. Right. Yeah, it, it is. And, and, you know, health goes all the way back to the cow, too. Um, you, if, if you'll do a good job with your, with your cow herd and vaccinating vaccinating your cow herd uh, yearly, making sure they've got plenty of um, trace minerals available. It makes a huge difference. But that goes all back to that fetal programming and, and um, you know, the programming of the immune system even before they're born. So yeah. we, see, we see these commingled calf sales. Certain ones uh, have much healthier calves simply because they require vaccines in the in the cow herd you know that they have documented evidence of that so the calves tend to do much better just overall improving the level of management whole herd wise right 
Yeah. It all it all does make a difference in terms of health. And believe me, once they start to have health problems or respiratory issues and treat them, then they're much more prone to get it again. And there's only so much lung space there. Uh, and, and lung space doesn't recover. So they get a pneumonia, that area becomes scar tissue and doesn't become, it doesn't go back to functional lung. So each, each success in time that they get sick is a little more of that lung space gone, um, which really affects their, um, their finish. You know, in the end, it, it makes the difference. Those are the ones that, that just don't grade. Um, they don't have the weight. They don't have the weight gain. Uh, they're not efficient. And that, and that is bad for the, for the feedlot owner. And they let us know. Absolutely. <laughs> they let us know pretty quickly Absolutely. when that happens. Well, Dr. Arnold, this has been great discussion, and uh, we're close to wrapping up our time. Is there anything that you can think of that we haven't really hit on with regards to weaning and trying to keep these calves healthy? I think we pretty well covered the the, the gamut. Um, just remember sanitation too. You know, using clean needles. Um, disinfecting the drench gun. If you're using a drench gun, disinfect it between calves, even though these are your calves and raised together, you still don't want to use, uh, you still want to have that disinfection between, uh, not necessarily have to use individual needles for calves that are going to be sold to, to um, slaughter. But if you're retaining heifers, for example, those are situations where you want to think about using single use needles when an animal is going to be in the herd for a long time. Good point, because the opportunity for blood bloodborne pathogens to be spread from one animal to the next with a needle. Right, right. Yeah. I guess the only other thing would be if you uh, purchase a lot of cattle, if you buy, uh, for example, pregnant heifers, that, that's where you might think about um, instituting some BBD testing for PI. With, when you get the little ear notch of uh, skin and submit it to the lab, uh, the most common way those those PI calves get into your herd is by purchasing pregnant animals. So uh, even though the, the, the cow is negative, the calf can be positive. So just kind of bear that in mind. It's, it's not a bad practice um, to institute. That's And so as we think about that, then... Um, there are certainly resources out there for folks to learn how to do that. And the, I think there at the diagnostic lab, you, you all do the, the testing as well, don't you? We do it here and there's several, um, several places around and of course, breath it does. Um, there's dependable livestock testing and Smith's Grove does a lot of testing for, um, for the state. Uh, actually, dependable livestock will send you all the equipment that you need. If um, They'll send the vials and they make it pretty, pretty easy to do. So and it's cheap. It's a cheap test, three to four dollars per head. Um, and it's something you'd want to be aware of because they, they have a whole lot more sickness uh, if there is a PI calf in the group. It's that level of immunity versus exposure, right? And those PIs right. are shedding a ton of viral of virus. So you would want to know, you would want to know if they're in there. Yeah. 
Excellent. Well, Dr. Arnold, I want to thank you for uh, joining us today and uh, sharing a, a wealth of information on kind of simple management strategies that, that we can take to help try and keep our calves at top health when we get around the weaning. And uh, as we think about uh, moving in to September, we'll start seeing some of these calves get weaned and, and coming uh, for the CPH sales that'll be in later in the year with that mm -hmm. 45, 60 day weaning time frame is going to hit up here real quick. So, and I think, didn't that get increased this year or did they increase that to 75 days? Uh, we went from 45 to 60. Days. 45 to 60. Okay. Yep. And mm -hmm. that was feedback from the industry. And, mm -hmm. uh, but now there are still other programs out there that are 45 days. So, right. Uh, your initial discussion about that is, is um, you know, finding what program you're going to market into is really important. That is very important because they, like I said, they're all different and they all have their own set of uh, requirements and how to, and who's going to sign off on that too, that you actually did it. So make sure you read the fine print. Good point. <laughs> well, thanks again, Dr. Arnold, for joining us today on the Beef Bits podcast. Thanks for having me. Have a you good bet. week. Stay cool. Hey, you too, Dr. Arnold. Take care. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Beef Bits podcast. We hope you found it enjoyable and informative. Be sure to subscribe to the Beef Bits podcast for future episodes as well as listen to previous ones. Until next time, be safe and reach out to your county extension office for more information on beef management topics. <laughs>